cultures around the world have always looked to nature as a source of both increased health and wellness. While modern science continues to support this connection, we spend the majority of our time indoors. Welcome to the Nature of Wellness podcast, where we explore the relationship between the natural world and the human experience. Join us as we discuss all things nature, health, and well-being. We truly believe the future of health is now. Welcome to another episode of the Nature of Wellness podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Campbell, and with me is one of my favorite people, definitely someone I listed on my what I'm grateful for list yesterday at Thanksgiving, someone <laughs> who I've known for a long time and can't imagine doing this without Mr. Steve Otero. How are you, Steve? Hey, doing well, man. I'm grateful for you too. Thanks so much. Yeah, buddy. How's I life mean, on with, East Coast. It's good. Might hear a little something in my voice. Weather is going nuts this season for some reason, and definitely feeling it right in the back of my throat. So if I sound a little off today, that's what you're hearing. Definitely didn't stop me from enjoying Thanksgiving yesterday and yeah. again today with the leftovers. You know, the, one of my favorite days just because of the variety of cuisine, I will say, but <laughs> nice. also because it's a day for us to collectively share the things that we're grateful for. And honestly, I, I want to start off as generic as it's going to sound. And I know that we keep getting called out for our on-air bromance, but man, I am so grateful for you. Just not even about the show, not even as being a part of this journey with me, but just for you as a human, knowing that you're out there, knowing that you're doing the work that you're doing, man, and you're helping so many people, just it's beautiful. So just know that I'm grateful for you. Well, I love you too, buddy. Ah. I, I can't say I, I can't say anything more deeply appropriate to express my own gratitude. I hope that others who do choose to listen would be more willing to tell their friends that they love them, that we care about each other, and and we're willing to put ourselves out there, you know, emotionally, right? I, this is new for me. I don't claim to be, you know, an expert in like sharing my feelings, right? It's only been about the last decade or so that I've even been willing to go down the road of considering sharing my feelings, right? So I still call myself a newbie at this, still learning, a student every day, learning and trying to understand how to be grateful, how to share love, how to accept love, and to to have a deeper sense of empathy. That was not something that I've always carried. I, that wasn't necessarily cultivated within me, yeah, especially in my teen years or in my 20s as a male in the military serving sure. in combat. So I'm so, so happy to be able to say, dude, I love you. So grateful that we're on this show journey together, right? And we have the ability to have the interesting conversations that we have with a variety right, of professionals in the wellness, health industries, science, research, right, academia. We are so, so lucky so far that all of these individuals have been willing to give us their time. Yeah. Right? One of the most valuable things any human can ever possess is our time. So thank Absolutely. you. Well, man, listen, I love you too, buddy. And, and a couple of things just based on what you just said. Anybody that's been around you feels that in you, that gratitude, that empathy, that love. And anybody that truly knows you understands that it's been a journey for you and they understand the authenticity behind those feelings. So just please know that. I know that gratitude is such a special feeling and emotion for you. I know it's something that you've written about a lot in your academic journey. I know it's something that we talk about often. I was a comment from a listener between seasons is that they loved how your final thought is always about being grateful for the guest, which I know is completely genuine. And sure. I, I was just wondering, what what are you grateful for? Aside from me, I, I do appreciate that. But th you know, with Thanksgiving <laughs> yeah. being yesterday, what's something that you're grateful for? <laughs> I'm grateful for opportunity. 
right? That and I and I, to explain myself, like opportunity is not something that again that I've always been able to see in in life and prior experiences. I've seen a lot of the negative, right? I've seen and assessed the potential negative outcomes, partially because of like military training and then the enculturation that I had into hyper masculinity. And so to see opportunity in the challenging scenarios in life is something that I'm very, very grateful for because it's helped me really progress in a positive way, even through some of the worst challenges that I faced. And I hadn't been able to label it in the past. So to recognize and to see opportunity, even when I believe I'm enveloped in darkness and I'm, I'm wrapped up in a moment of severe life challenge, to be able to see opportunity through those challenges, right? That's really what I'm grateful for. Because I can tell you right now, I was really scared becoming a dad. I was really scared getting out of the military. I was really, really scared moving into the mountains, even though I knew that this was an environment that I felt the most joy within. I was really, really scared, right? About all those major sort of life milestones. And every single one of those life milestones has simply presented even more wonderful opportunities. So I know it might sound cheesy. Great. Judge me, judge away (laughs) people, but hey, I am grateful for opportunity. So I hope you might be too. Oh man, always. And I tell my clients every single day, multiple times a day that the opportunities are all around us. We just have to be open to them. And what I'm hearing you say is that you've developed this perspective over time and it really allows you a lens to look through and see, you know, when I think things are are really bad, I've seen really bad before. This, this maybe isn't so bad today, you know, and the fact that you can continuously grow and develop and organically change in positive ways. That's just, that's beautiful. I don't know another word to describe it that best captures it. It's absolutely beautiful. And I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about some of the gratitude stuff that you found before we dive into our interview. Yes. I wanted to see like compartmentalize a little bit, right? Make a a succinct sort of statement or two related to gratitude and our concept of being grateful. And you know, I love research, right? I'm a researcher. I'm, I'm part of my local university's institutional review board. So I get to see a lot of research papers every month. You know, I feel very privileged. And you know, um, one, of the, one of the articles that I saw as a reference in a study came from um, a couple of folks, uh, Russell and Fascia in 2008. And they wrote that thanking others, thanking ourselves, Mother Nature, uh, any definition of the Almighty, Right, gratitude in any form can enlighten the mind and make us feel happy, happier. It has a healing effect on us. Right, so gratitude and simply the act of becoming grateful, being grateful, expressing being grateful can heal us right? in a variety of ways. So I just found that very, very fascinating. You know, the benefits of gratitude are endless. So something exciting, I think. Yeah. And I think gratitude is often associated with the emotional dimension of wellness, but it's really hard, as I say all the time, to separate the different dimensions. They are all interconnected. And I think that gratitude also plays a huge role in the spiritual part of who we are, especially, as you said, giving that thanks to maybe a higher being or nature or just something bigger than ourselves. And I know that we've acknowledged this a few times on season one already. And I mean, the science is there. It's really hard to dispute how much we heal from being grateful and expressing that gratitude, not just feeling it, but expressing it to others. And I love that when you do that, you're also allowing them to feel that too. So you're passing it on. And in a time where we are 
lonely and disconnected and feeling, you know, like we're doing this by ourselves a lot of times. What a great way to combat that, just expressing gratitude. And we used to do that. We used to do that all the time. It was a normal part of society. So I love that you said that. I'm also very grateful for our guest today. I'll go ahead and segue in that direction, Steve. Uh, This is somebody that I met in, I believe, 2019 at a mindfulness conference in DC. And I was instantly drawn to her, her work, her message, her presence on stage, just the way she articulated her whole outlook on health and well-being and humanity. It was just, it was amazing. And I was immediately just drawn in and we've stayed in contact over the years. And it's been sort of a secret dream of mine to have her on the show. I know we tried last year and had a a scheduling conflict, so I couldn't be happier, especially the day after Thanksgiving, to have someone on that just I'm so grateful for in my life. Today's guest is Pilar Gerasimo. Pilar is an award-winning health journalist, pioneering social explorer, and author of The Healthy Deviant, a rule breaker's guide to being healthy in an unhealthy world. Best known for her visionary work as founding editor of Experience Life magazine, which today reaches more than 3 million people with each issue. Pilar has also served as top health editor for the Huffington Post and as visiting faculty for the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. Today, Pilar co-hosts a top-rated podcast called The Living Experiment, which is fantastic, and teaches online courses through her digital learning platform, Healthy Deviant Academy. She guest lectures at universities, leads workshops at top retreat centers, and consults for organizations committing to transforming health and happiness at work and around the globe. Her work has been featured by the World Economic Forum, MIT, International Monetary Fund, and a variety of other thought-leading platforms. When she's not traveling, Pilar hangs out on her family's organic communal farm in Wisconsin with her pit bull, Sweet Sally Sue. Pilar, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, Mark, thank you so much for having me. And Steve, it's so great to be here with you. We love listening to you guys talk, and I'm really honored to get to be part of the conversation today. Well, thank you so Thanks much for, for taking the time. Yeah, this is a busy week and I know that everybody has plans and I know how important family is to you based on our our previous conversations. And I would love to start off, if you don't mind, just telling us a little bit about your background. Yeah, I mean, there's my personal background and my professional background. And like most people, they converged at some point. And my own personal journey um, was effectively of being raised in a pretty healthy environment by kind of counterculture parents. And being encouraged to go my way, my own way, do my own thing, find my own happiness, and ultimately rejected most of what my parents taught me once I got to school and was being asked to conform to a bunch of social expectations and norms. I didn't really know it at the time, but the power of that experience um, of trying to fit in and trying to be accepted and do what other people were doing and have what other people were having really caused me over the course of a decade or so to lose the natural health and fitness that were, I think, is all of our birthrights. Most of us, if we're lucky to come into reasonably healthy bodies as babies, we are healthy until we get unhealthy because we're exposed to unhealthy food and unhealthy stresses and unhealthy environments. But my experience, I think, because I was raised by parents who had kind of instilled early the idea that going against the cultural expectations norms was maybe a good thing. My rebellion was to go normal, normie. You know, I just wanted so badly to fit in. And what happened to me, I think, is what happens to a lot of people. I just got less healthy and less happy. The harder I tried to go along with all of that, to look how I thought I had to look, to be how I thought I had to be, and to have all the things I thought I had to have, 
accumulated so much stress in my body that I really started breaking down and I got dysregulated at every level, my metabolism, my neurology, my digestion, my hormones. So I ended up having to really make a conscious effort to get my health back. And that journey back in the nineties really was fraught with danger. You know, it was diet culture and, you know, going for the burn and all of this really regimented health and fitness activity that when put onto a stressed out, freaked out system actually did more damage than good for me. And then I had to kind of recover from that and figure out a different way of getting healthy and happy that would actually work. So I had kind of came full circle and I realized that a lot of what my parents had told me originally was right. Um, but I needed to find my own way of doing it. And in the course of that, I ultimately became a health journalist, started this magazine in partnership with Lifetime Fitness, now called Lifetime, the Healthy Way of Life Company. And their organization really embraced the idea that health and fitness is not just about exercise or going to a gym or eating a diet, that it's really about a way of life and learning, finding your own way of life that works for you based on your preferences and circumstances and needs is really the art of a lifetime. So the work I did at the magazine was about uh, 15 years of incredibly intense research. We did you know, 10 issues a year and 15 articles with each magazine typically. So it was like I was a sponge soaking up all of this research and data and insight. And I got really interested in things like functional medicine, understanding systems-based medical approaches to chronic illnesses that we were only really, you know, managing diseases at that point. Now we're, we're seeing the reversal of those diseases. That kind of thing really excites me. But, um, you know, what happened, there's kind of an interesting pivot point for me. A lot of people don't know this about me. While I was at Lifetime, I started a project I'll call, we call the Revolutionary Act. And the idea that being healthy is a revolutionary act, that in an unhealthy culture, choosing to be a healthy person requires revolutionary perspectives and attitudes and choices. That started a kind of nascent project where I wrote a manifesto for thriving in a mixed up world. And I wrote 101 revolutionary ways to be healthy. That turned into a mobile app and an infographic that got kind of virally popular. And I realized that this idea was connecting with people. And I realized it was really fundamentally important to me. And it started this idea of writing a book about this issue and how to navigate an unhealthy world as a health seeker, as a health chooser, a health motivated person. So all of the other work I've done, you know, the podcast, other projects, so all kind of converged in the book that I wrote in that came out in 2020, just after we met Mark at that mindful leadership conference. And so ever since then, that's been what I've been doing is really preaching the gospel of healthy deviance, the art of being healthy in an unhealthy world and helping people figure out ways to do that, even in the face of really big challenges. Gosh, I love that so much. And you absolutely walk the talk. Every conversation, every time I've seen you speak, every podcast interview I've heard you give. It's just so authentic. And that's one thing that really stood out to me in what you were just talking about is the authenticity along the way in your journey. And once you found that authenticity and found your your voice and your version of it, even with your parents' advice, I'm you know parent age, I don't have kids, but I'm parent age now and I'm starting to realize how much my parents' advice was true, maybe growing up, even though I didn't want to hear it. But you said something, you had to find your own version of it. And I love that so much. And I think that's where we fail. We feel like we have to take other people's advice, not just parents, but you know, teachers, mentors, bosses, anybody in a hierarchical position that's above us, we have to take their, their word as gospel. Uh, I think taking the message and finding our own authentic way to put that message into action is really where we fail. And 
used a lot of words there that I really liked. And I think, you know, maybe as a society, we misunderstand at times. And Steve, I know you're going to love this, but revolutionary and manifesto <laughs> and deviance. What do you think, Steve? Well, I mean, I, I would like to take the opportunity to ask someone who, who is definitely more versed, well-versed in the term deviance than I. So how do you define deviance? It's a great question. Well, the, the definition as it's popularly understood in our culture is of some very bad person, right? It's somebody who's doing, you know, potentially illegal or immoral or unacceptable things, deviating in ways that are, you know, potentially evil or damaging. But the objective definition of deviant is simply somebody who is doing something that is different than the society that they're surrounded by. So they're deviating from conventional accepted norms of the of the circumstance of the culture of that moment in history. And what we know is that those norms change over time and culture. Um, there's a picture I might have shown actually in the, the presentation that Mark saw where my pregnant mother is holding my hand. I'm like one and a half or two years old, little toddler. And she's, she's pregnant with my little sister, but she's got a lit cigarette in her other hand. And at the time when I was born, yes, 1967, this would have been 1968, 1969, women, pregnant women smoking was a perfectly acceptable thing. And in fact, many doctors recommended smoking to women of all ages to help them manage their weight, for example. Uh, you know, it was like a, it was sort of a accepted thing, like maybe chewing a stick of gum or something. But that norm has shifted dramatically. Similarly, spitting on the floor, you know, used to be an acceptable thing in many bars and restaurants. And, in many cultures, spitting on the floor or on the ground in front of other people is still considered perfectly polite. So the point I think that I want to make is that what is considered normal at any given time is really just a matter of common agreement. It isn't necessarily the best possible way of doing things. And the culture that we live in now is one where, statistically speaking, 97.3% of US adults are not capable of practicing even the most basic healthy behaviors on a regular basis. And that explains why we have as much health crisis as we have. You know, 80% of people are not thriving mentally and emotionally. Potentially, it's closer to 90% now, actually, because last time the CDC took a measure of it during COVID, it was 89%. Sure. Um, so I guess my definition of a healthy deviant is somebody who consciously chooses to deviate from unhealthy norms for the purpose of becoming healthier and happier than the average or no considered normal standard. And I just think our standard of health has become lower and lower and lower as we become less and less healthy in body and mind. And I really believe that a lot of the challenges that our world is facing right now are not going to be solved by 99% of people circling the drain. We need healthy, happy people with capacity and focus and passion and curiosity and, you know, willingness to make some of the changes that we're going to need to make to steer our culture and our planet in a better direction. So. That that purpose is going to be different for different people. For me, the purpose now is like, I want to live in a healthier, happier world. But when you're really struggling with a chronic illness or you're depressed or anxious, the purpose really might just be to get a little closer to feeling to how you want to feel, to showing up how you want to show up, to having a life experience that feels better and more sustainable to you personally. Then I think the circumstances of your life change and your capacity changes and things get bigger and better. But yeah, deviance is a word that's very, very charged. And I will say, when I was pitching my book, a lot of publishers wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole because the, the term deviant, even preceded by healthy, was just too scary. 
Wow. And so what are, what are some of your, if you had like a short list, right? What, what would some of your bullet points for someone be to, to start practicing healthy deviance? Yeah. Well, one thing that I learned as a health journalist is that most people are wildly overwhelmed with all of the things that they're told they have to do simultaneously. You know, eat this kind of diet, do this kind of workout, manage your stress this way, meditate, get an app, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of my principles are really like it, the book itself is a, is a big book. It's 300 pages, but it's divided into five parts. And there's a central part of the book where I describe what I call the nonconformist competencies and renegade rituals of healthy deviance. The nonconformist competencies, there are three of. The first nonconformist competency is amplified awareness. And I have four little sections about this, but Phase one in my healthy deviant journey is like becoming aware of what's going on within you and around you. Now, some people use mindfulness and meditation to become aware. Some people go into nature to be, amplify their awareness, to be able to get in sync with their senses. Sometimes it's really about just noticing actually what's going on inside your own body when you eat something that doesn't agree with you. What was that? You know, when you wake up feeling good one day, why is that? When a song comes on the radio and suddenly your mood comes up, oh, that's good to notice. So amplified awareness, if you don't have that, you will not notice what's going off and wrong around you and within you. You also won't notice what's going right and seeing the patterns that are constructive and working for you. So there's a lot of ways to deal with that, but amplified awareness is the first thing. And I suggest many strategies for achieving that. The second nonconformist competency is preemptive repair. And this is the idea that you need to get ahead of the damage that's done to you just by virtue of living in a pro-inflammatory, stressful, freaky, dysregulating culture. Because if you allow yourself to become depleted or worn down or fatigued, you become incredibly vulnerable to like automatic default choices, convenience, normalcy. Everyone's eating it, you know, whatever. Like <laughs> what's the most easy thing to eat? What's the most easy way to entertain yourself? These are going to be unhealthy choices by default. So preemptive repair is things like eating something reasonably healthy, like a whole food, before you're ravenously hungry. It's drinking water before you get dehydrated and have a headache and then you know have to go lie down. It's um, resting before you're exhausted. A lot of my strategies have to do with noticing, again, amplified awareness, when your fatigue hits during the day and learning new strategies for responding to fatigue and stress rather than just pushing through them, for example. So preemptive repair helps people to have better awareness because they stay more conscious it also helps them practice then the third nonconformist competency, which is continuous growth and learning. And continuous growth and learning is the idea, this is all supported by all the positive psychology and growth mindset, but also the idea that you need to actually develop and continue to develop skills, practical skills for being a healthy person in an unhealthy world. And that skill set is constantly expanding because the world around us is constantly changing. You know, social media didn't exist back when I was a, a teenager, a young adult. I didn't need skills to manage my social media intake. Now I really need those skills. So it isn't just diet and exercise, which are complicated enough in themselves. At least we've made them seem very complicated. They don't actually need to be complicated. But learning those skills of the healthy person and embracing a beginner's mindset and enjoying the journey of continually learning what you need to learn and noticing in your life, again, back to amplified awareness, when something is hard for you, like exercise or nutrition changes, it's not because you're a bad person or you lack capacity innately. It's just you don't have the skills yet. And I really believe most people can build the skills of healthy living 
over time, but they end up bottoming themselves out by feeling like they should know it all from the beginning. And that's when they become very vulnerable to being sold a solution, like a super program or an instant fix that really sets right. people back. Um, so those are the competencies. And we'll talk a little bit later, I think, about the renegade rituals by which you can begin to develop and master these competencies. There are many other ways, but I really suggest daily practices that are primarily focused on helping to re-regulate the dysregulated systems most people have, just again, by virtue of living in this world that we've arranged for ourselves. Stay with us. We'll be right back. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. I think that's great. And honestly, it's simple. It's innate. It's it's what we've, as a species, isn't that how we've gotten here? And, you know, we, we were socializing our journey to be more complicated than it ever has to be. And I, I say it all the time. I was just doing an interview the other day and I said, there's, I look around and there's not a whole lot that we're doing on a day-to-day basis to really help ourselves out moving forward and to make our species better. We're kind of happy where we are, it seems. And that's terrifying because right now we have more access and more resources than ever before, but we're the most unwell than we've ever been. Especially, I do a lot of work in the mental health space and you know, there's such a big focus on that right now. And there are so many different programs, apps, organizations there for our mental health. There's no reason if it's just based on resources, access, there's no reason that anybody should struggle, but we're the most unwell mentally than we've ever been. And that's terrifying. And and the way you're talking about this is so simple and it's so easy to apply I know that there are a couple things from the book that really stood out to me, a couple of phrases that I've, I've had written down for a while on a post-it note on my desk. But one thing you said was, if you aren't breaking rules, you're probably breaking yourself. Yeah. And then you also mentioned the crazy that passes as normal. And I've heard you say <laughs> yeah. that a few times. And I that stood out to me so much, especially in today's climate, today's society. We pass off a lot of crazy as that's just what it is. Absolutely. And we normalize the chaos. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. One of the call outs in the book that I really was attached to talking about was that our fundamental problem is not even the food system. It's not the fact that our lights are on all the time. It's not that social media interrupts us every 10 seconds. It's not that we have sedentary pastimes and all of that. Those are representations of this crazy world that we've created. The fundamental problem is that our most basic daily needs as human beings are not being met during the course of what passes for so-called normal daily life. And the basic daily needs that we have are the ones that we developed as a species over 2.5 million years of human history, where we lived as mostly hunter-gatherers and nomadic tribes, living in radically different circumstances that we now think of as being very harsh and difficult. But the truth is, 
we learned the skills that we needed to survive and even thrive from at that time, you know, our ancestors, generations going back, grandparents, great grandparents, great 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 grandparents, two point five million years of human history, where culturally we learned the skills of how to be human in this world and survive on the basis of natural environments, but also two point five million years during which our DNA as a species developed to meet the requirements of those circumstances. So the way that we are living right now is so radically different from the circumstances that our DNA and all of the programmed systems in our body are recounting on or prepared for. There's this, it's called evolutionary mismatch problem where the current body minds that we have are really not that different from our hunter-gatherer ancestors, but our environments are radically different and they're accelerating. And they're accelerating at the pace of change that is almost inconceivable. I show a graph in my book, which I illustrated in part because these ideas are hard to get across, I think, in words. But when you see the pictures, it's like if you can imagine a a kind of graph, like a timeline that begins 2.5 million years ago and goes all the way to the present moment of today, almost the entirety of it would be a flat line in terms of technological, environmental, cultural change. Really just nothing much happened except people got better and better and better at learning how to master and work with the environments that they had. Then about 10,000 years ago, we got this agricultural revolution that massively changed the circumstances of humanity. And we domesticated plants and animals, developed surpluses, moved into towns and villages. And that set of environments catalyzed creative and technological changes that produced ultimately the industrial revolution, technological and digital revolutions, but in a flash of an eye relatively to the rest of the 2.5 million years. This all happened, most of it in the last couple hundred years. So we've had no time to adapt. And what passes for normal now, which is waking up to an alarm in an electronically lit space, going immediately into relating with digital media or news, you know, being filled with chemical caffeine and other things that are kind of, wow, <laughs> like we go into this incredibly stress-filled environment and then persist in trying to be productive in that environment with almost no rest or recovery breaks, that's the crazy that passes for normal while being advertised to every 23 seconds or more about something that we supposedly need to have to solve the problems that we're having. But most of those solutions don't really solve the problems. And you know, today I posted on my Instagram, Mark, you were sweet to, to comment on it, but it really sets up a cycle where these automatic default choices are leading us into really uncomfortable chronic illnesses of the body and the mind. And then we go into the medical system because we have all of these symptoms and problems. And the medical system actually ends up being causing a lot of additional problems for us in many cases, or at least it doesn't solve the root problem. And then we're made even more vulnerable and more ill and more frustrated. And we also are being parted with our, from our money, which we're now working harder to earn. And we're just set up on this horrible mill that is a downward spiral. And I think that's to me, the deviation I'm excited about, the rule breaking I'm excited about is not just deviating for the purposes of being a revolutionary or a rebel. It's like, I want to bust myself and other people out of that cycle and return ourselves to something like functioning human beings. Cause we're operating at a tiny percentage of our potential most of the time. So um, yeah, that's what that means. You know, when I say that our most basic daily needs are not being met during the course of so-called normal daily life, the question that comes out of that is, how could we meet them? How could we both bust out of the cultural straitjackets that we're in by deviating? And then gradually, how can we begin to shift our society 
into something that works better for us. And that's the job of the now. I mean, we are the first generation in the history of humanity to be attempting to live lives anything like the ones we're living. There is no previous generation to show us how to be healthy in this environment. And that's why you and I, we have taken on this challenge. I think some of us are recognizing, hey, this is the job of today, man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is what needs to be done now. I think that's great. Gosh, so much to unpack in just what you said. I do want to follow up by saying that I love that you describe healthy deviance, describe your work as a whole person context. And I think that some of these new challenges, it's almost like we've, you said we've mastered this as a species. We mastered our challenges at some point. I feel like now we're socialized to create more challenges constantly. And I feel like that's, uh, if you turn on the TV, <laughs> any of the channels we normally watch, probably not Hallmark. I'll say that just being the time of year it is. but. It's a constant stream of those challenges that we're creating for ourselves. And I love that you talk about all of this as a whole person context. And, you know, being a wellness guy by training, everything I do is holistic. Everything I do is whole person. I feel like some of these resources that we're talking about claim to be whole person centered, but they still focus on a step challenge or a mental health workbook, or, you know, they, they pull out one of those dimensions and really hyper focus on it. And what I'm hearing you say and what science has told us time and time again is that we have to address the whole person. And I don't know that people have really cracked the code on how to commercialize and monetize whole person just yet, which is <laughs> maybe why we're seeing a dragging of the feet in that direction. But I do think, and I, I do appreciate, and I'm very grateful for what you said about you know folks like you and I, mostly because you put me in the category with you, which is pretty cool, attacking this problem. <laughs> Because it, it has to be, it has to be honestly reclaiming terms, which we've talked about a lot on the show, not running away from terms like wellness. And I said this with John Langford in our previous episode, Steve, when we walk away from these terms like mindfulness, resilience, wellness, pick a term, we normally are being told to walk away from it because it becomes white noise. And we walk towards the same thing, but packaged differently. And sold to you differently every and advertised every 23 seconds, which is terrifying, as you mentioned. How important do you think, and I, I'm pretty sure I know this answer, but how important do you think it is to really focus in on that whole person context, especially in the landscape that we're living in right now? Well, I think it's incredibly important. And I think that it's really poorly misunderstood. First of all, the biggest thing is people don't exist as individual people almost ever. There is no taking of a whole person if you're going to disconnect the person from their environment and their social circles, their support and their history, their cultural heritage. So we are people by definition in relationship with society and community. And I think most whole so-called whole people wellness and health programs, uh, really it's just code for, we're going to talk about so-called mental health and physical health, and we're going to talk about nutrition and we're going to talk about fitness. And I, I think that's great. Yeah, that's good too. But to me, uh, even really a lot of the good functional medicine programs, which I, I respect and admire, that talk about root cause medicine and getting to the root cause of illnesses, only go to the point of like, oh, it's leaky gut, or oh, it's a you know, you're, it's a parasitic infection or a mold problem. They don't go to like the fact that we're living in a society that is so incredibly unhealthy that most people cannot do the things that they need to do to stay healthy and happy. I mean, that's not for lack of trying. 
And it's not that we have all these people with this like terrible willpower problems, you know, they're just lazy, bad humans. We really, I think, fundamentally ignore the patterns that are set up in our society that have people making the choices that they're making. And in corporate environments, you know, so often you'll have these whole person health challenges or they'll have health culture, you know, they want to have corporate wellness as a, as a priority or a value, but it's really just about sticking stuff and bolting things on like, oh, now we have a nap room or gee, now we have carrot sticks in the refrigerator, or we now have a biggest loser program twice a year. And it's like, no, 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 no. Not when your people are coming to work exhausted and freaked out and inflamed and then working all day long without a break and then going home and getting in fights with their partners or kids or being dead, like husks of themselves. And they're stressed all the time and checking their email all the time and trying to do more work than they can possibly do. I do a little bit of corporate consulting under a guise I call <laughs> Healthy Deviants at Work, which you can imagine is about as popular with corporations as my book title <laughs> was with publishers. <laughs> but there are some progressive companies who've embraced some pilot programs. And it's it goes really deep, really fast, because you start have to ask, work and corporations are much like many societies. They have unspoken rules, unspoken expectations, setups for patterns that may be incredibly unproductive and destructive, but it's what we've always done. This is how we do it, you know? And we got to see a lot of disruption of that during the pandemic, expectations about people being in the office, for example, things like that. We won't go into that now because it's not our topic. But whole person health, you cannot have a whole person health program, I do not think, without addressing a person in the context of their human community, their built environment, their natural environment, and more. And I know you guys talk a lot about how important nature is to well-being. But again, people often try to bolt that relationship on too. Like, oh, I'll spend my 10 minutes a day in nature. Yay. Fine. That's much better than nothing. But it, more important is to notice that you are nature. Everything in your body is built of natural substances. Thousand percent. Trillions of creatures inside you. And we are all stardust. Absolutely. We are stardust. <laughs> I think Tony Mitchell said something about that, right? We got to get ourselves back to the garden. So yeah, I, I'm really glad you asked that question. And I, I do feel as a culture, we're giving wellness and well-being and health a lot of lip service. And I think we're really struggling to reframe and reclaim it in ways that are going to work for us. I think my work is difficult for a lot of people to initially get their head around. They often will say, well, can you just tell me? the top three things, for example. And I'm like, well, the top thing is to know that there is not just three things. And, you know, it's like, I get it. People, of course, we all want the bullet points. That's like the chat GPT answer. Just give it to me that way. But the reason that I wrote the book the way that I wrote it is I really started by describing what I call the misunderstood problem and the renegade solution. If you don't understand the real problem, which is that our society is set up to fail <laughs> people and for people to fail within it right now, not because everybody wants that, but that's just the result of a bunch of experiments that have gone badly. If you don't understand that, you're going to endlessly try to solve all of the downstream problems of that, and you're going to wear yourself out trying, and you're going to feel like you're failing at it. I think it's a really high time that we radically reorient our attention in health seeking back to how do I change my relationship with this culture? How do I reclaim my attention? How do I reclaim my energy? How do I reclaim my equanimity so that I can make decisions that are in the service of my well-being, not in reaction to what the society is telling me to do and be? Wow. You got my vote. 
It's very cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when, when are you running for office? Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> well, I don't blame you there. But I, again, I go back full circle to what you said at the beginning. It starts with amplified awareness. If we're not yeah. aware of these things, we can never, A, find the things that we want to sustain in our lives that we need, and B, learn the things that we need to manage and possibly change. And Steve, you know, being a veteran and all the work I did with the military, how many AARs did you do after action reviews? Oh, no. Yeah, no, no. Don't bring me back to that spot mentally. No, nope. I'm just saying. I'm good. <laughs> I bet you'd like to have a dollar for every one of those, right? And <laughs> sure. There were a thousand more. Yeah. Looking at the sustains and the changes, but it was all about the awareness and creating that plan moving forward, how to be a better version of yourself. And I think that that's really what's missing. It's not just bolting pieces on, which I love that. I absolutely think that that's exactly where we're at, but give it to me in pill form. Give it to me in 127 characters. We started losing when we started doing that years ago. I agree in succinct messaging. I agree in using sticky terms so that people want to use it and they remember it. But sometimes the message has to be a little longer and we can't overlook that. And sometimes it takes a while. And if we look back to the graph that you're talking about over those many, many, many years, nothing happened quickly. Even the industrial piece of this took a little bit of time. Now, granted, compared to everything else, it was rapid, but still took time. And and the solution is not going to be rapid. It's not going to be instantaneous or overnight. But I go back to the question a 10-year-old boy asked me while I was hiking a couple of months ago, how do we fix this? He was referring to climate change. And I said, the first step is we have to listen to each other. That's it. We have to sit down and be willing to listen and put our ego aside and stop thinking we have the answer and just hear what other people are saying. Because none of us, none of us have the answer, myself included, you know, none of us. And to say that we do or to, to sell it as if we do, I don't know. It's, it's tough. I, I like money. I'm not going to lie about that, but it's not my love of money should never overshadow my love of thriving as a species. Because if there is no species, then there is no chance to make money. But I think everything that you're talking about is so needed. And I know that you joked about the corporate setting and, you know, maybe the, the terms are a little spooky sometimes, but you continuously go back to reclaiming things. That's what I'm hearing. Going yeah. back to what's normal. And I say normal based on not, you know, I, I know that deviance is, is kind of anti-normal, but going back to what we've known as a species, you know, deviating from what we've become and getting back to what we know we should be. I love that part of it so much. Well, you know, I think, Mark, it's interesting. I, you know, I think the reason that most people want money is to be able to gain access to an experience or a set of experiences that feel better to them. The challenge is that now I just think we have had enough. We've had a, you know, really it's we had a post-Second World War that advertising kicked in heavily to promote production capacity that had increased to the point that there wasn't enough demand for the capacity of the production that we'd built to support the Second World War and that machine. And a lot of people don't really know this history, but like advertising did not exist in the same way before that. And, you know, you'd have little catalogs that had, you know, a plow or a petticoat in them. But the, the onslaught of encouragement to consume things and to have more money to buy more things that are supposedly going to make your life easier and better it has become, when I say an experiment, I mean, it's just really been a few generations that we've been trying this path to happiness. You have a problem, buy a thing, here, this will be the solution. 
And then, oh, you now still have a different problem or that problem didn't get solved. Another thing. And look at there's something that you could have that would be glorious, you know? Oh, fairy lights for the garden that run, you know, they're plastic, but they're running on solar. Oh, I should do that. And then you get like some Amazon packages show up in your house and now you have a box problem and you have a thing to hold the boxes. And we're going insane with this level of consumption. It's not producing satisfaction and we know it, but we're addicted to it. Just like we're addicted to the beeps and the blings on our phone. There are dopamine hits every time we pull out our credit card to order something. And we feel then low when our credit card bill comes and our identity is like, oh my God, I'm in debt and I'm struggling and I'm never going to get where I want to get. I must be a failure and stupid. And I really think it's anybody who has found themselves, and I'll raise my hand as someone who's been vulnerable to the come-ons that are hitting me every 23 seconds or more often now in the season of Black Friday and the Christmas and holiday and the shopping (laughs) season, it's going to be even more of that. I think listening to ourselves individually, is this working? Am I actually getting happier? Yeah, talking to each other about that is great too. The challenge that I see is that we're also busy looking outside of ourselves for these answers. We are not able to hear the barometer of our own body minds or see it or feel it anymore. We can't read the readings that say, I am breaking myself down here. I know I'm feeling depressed and anxious and freaked out. I'm not sleeping well. I'm feeling frantic and my mind is fractured. Listen to that. It is telling you something. It is telling you that you've become disconnected from your natural self and your natural patterns and the patterns that 2.5 million years of human history gave you (laughs) as a map for survival and thriving. So again, I just keep coming back to if you're trying to solve your health and fitness problems exclusively by shifting your nutrition and your exercise and bolting on fitness gadgets, understand that you are on a path that has been tried that is not going to take you far into this wellness experience you think you want. You're going to have to go back and think about how do I relate to my culture? How am I relating to the society around me? And what am I willing to do to shift that consciousness? Doesn't mean you have to like give up on money and fun things. We all like, yeah, we live in a capitalist society. And frankly, you know, there's a reason that our ancestors went from sleeping on the ground to raised beds inside, like hyenas and coyotes and poisonous snakes were probably not fun to live with. So we've improved (laughs) a lot, but we're just doing it as an experimental challenge. And some of the experiments are more proving more productive than others. Yeah. And I think we've definitely gone from those need to haves to the nice to haves, like you're saying. And you know, today being Black Friday, I think that that's a perfect time to talk about it. It's always sad, interesting and sad to see the news reports at the end of Black Friday, to see uh, the absolute worst in humanity today. And it's all based on that commercialized sense of where we need to be. And I think that a lot of it is comparison. I know in our previous conversations, we've talked a lot about comparison and how that really impacts our our gratitude and our shifting of our perspectives and Honestly, you've mentioned social media several times, and I think that that's been probably the worst thing in the history of our species as far as comparison goes. I know I've fallen victim to it a lot, professionally and personally, but what what can you say about comparison and how it really impacts us here? Yeah, that's a great segue. I mean, I think advertising is where my head goes, you know, that the way that advertising works is that it manufactures desire. And one of the ways that it manufactures desire is by giving us images that we either very obviously are meant to compare ourselves to, or that subtly set us up to feel less than 
Like I'm not, I don't look the same way as the person in the ad. I don't have the same level of convenience and ease as that person. You know, everything from a cleaning product to an exercise cycle or something. I'm not as happy as that person. Not as happy as that person. Absolutely. My, my spouse isn't as attractive as that person, you know, whatever <laughs> it is. Like, so we're constantly being encouraged to compare ourselves to other people and or to other scenes that are set up that are fake, you know, stock photography, supermodels, celebrities. AI. AI. Absolutely. Now it's like things in, in Photoshopped human beings that are not even, there's nobody who looks like that. But that set of comparisons is fundamentally making us miserable. And it drives the opposite of satisfaction and gratitude. It drives dissatisfaction. If you can think of, you know, if you were basically fed a nonstop diet of messages that you're not good enough, that you haven't yet become what you're supposed to be, and you're not on schedule to become that at any time soon, that everyone else has got it better than you. I mean, that's a recipe for disaster in the human body mind. It's going to be sucking up whatever attention you might have had of noticing what is good already around you. Some wise teachers of mine have explained it that, um, you know, it is much better to be able to appreciate what you have than to get what you think you want. Because if you're unable to appreciate the beauty and the wonder and the magical goodness of what you have, no matter what you get, you're going to be stuck with that same problem. And that is the scenario I see most people living in. I mean, three days after a purchase of a new thing that you thought was going to be the thing that made your life so much better, most people can't even remember that they didn't have it before. Because like no appreciable difference in your happiness. There's a cutoff point. And I think a few years ago, it was like, the level of income was like $70,000 or something, which is still quite a lot of money. But they, they basically said, after you hit this number, your life doesn't get better. You don't get happier. You have more stuff and you have more access to experiences, but your base level of satisfaction in your life doesn't improve. This is interesting to me because if we go back to the hunter-gatherer existence, fundamentally the way hunters-gatherers lived was probably the same basic level relative. I mean, the income thing, leave the money aside because they didn't use money mostly back then, but there were basic needs that were being met. Enough food to not be terribly hungry and not be you know, deficient in something. Enough social support around you that you weren't lonely. You're being supported by people living the same way you were. So you weren't competing or comparing yourself against them. You all had the same stuff. You were all working on the same problems, moving camp, finding something to eat. If we can find our way back to that pattern, or get just enough resources in our current reality to get to that pattern, I think we're going to find ourselves closer to happy. And I, I I could talk for days about this, but when I, when I said that the third nonconformist competency was continuous growth and learning, I don't mean learning how to do sets and reps. I don't mean learning how to count calories or even you know macronutrients or anything like that. I'm talking about the skills that are required to in some way mimic the things that were existing in our hunter-gatherer existence that still are accessible to us today, or some version of them can be created today. The pattern of how we use our time and energy, the pattern of how we engage with other people, the pattern of how we use output of energy and intake of resources. We're so imbalanced in that regard right now that it's making us crazy and it's filling up landfills faster than we know what to do. And it's burning fossil fuels at a pace that are absolutely off the, off the charts. So I think most of our, our bigger climate problems, our social problems, our economic problems will be solved in the same measure as our health problems and probably in the same time and space. They, they are connected. There's no disconnecting them in my mind. 
but we say it all the time, Steve, uh, it never has to be hard. We make it hard every day. You know, the answers are, are fairly simple and, you know, you keep using the word radical and it's amazing to me that some of the concepts you're talking about are considered radical. These are even with, we, we talk about loneliness a lot on the show because that's a big health issue right now. But even back to those hunter gatherers, how did they, you know, commune with each other? There was no TVs in each hut. There was no private libraries. They gathered in a central gathering place around a fire and they interacted. That was a communal thing. And I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the radical aspect of what you talk about in the book as far as moving forward. Would you like to take a few minutes and do that? Well, I don't know which radical aspect you mean, but I, I mean, I guess you know, I want to, I, what I really want to talk about, I think it is radical, first of all, that you, what, what you guys are talking about, this intersection of yeah. nature and well-being, of mental and physical and emotional and social health, of acknowledging these connections and becoming keenly interested in them, not just giving them lip service, but experimentally, experientially, including these experiences in our lives and noticing what feels good. You know, you talked about sitting around a fire with other people, something that feels good. That's encoded into our DNA to be a positive experience. Last night, I was at a friend's house who had a little dinner party with some folks. We just hung out in folding chairs in their backyard around a fire for hours, just talking. No one had their phone out. No one was, you know, trying to impress anybody. We were just like, hey, man, what's going on? What are you doing? Shooting the breeze, laughing, petting dogs and cats, looking up at the sky. And I was looking around at these folks and thinking, it's been a while since I've yeah. seen that, like a group of people just be happy hanging out together like that. And it's something we're so hungry for. That is one of those basic daily needs that is not being met during the course of so-called normal life. And I think until we acknowledge what the real needs are, we're going to try to fill a lot of other fake created needs that don't make it. They just don't cut it. And we're going to remain hungry on some level without really knowing what we're hungry for. So a lot of the places where I feel like my work and your work overlap is in this, let's take an interest in how we can feel better, function better, perform better in ways that are in keeping with our fundamental programming, not fighting it. And I think acknowledging that we've all been sold a pretty false bill of goods. And I said, you know, in my own journey, I had to kind of go through the fitting in phase, the trying really hard phase, the thinking if only I just try harder and have more willpower phase. And it really took me getting to a point of, you know, really breaking myself down pretty badly before I was willing to try it a different way, a radically different way. And the radical reframing in my mind really comes down to the problem is not you. The problem is not me. The problem is the way we are living in the society that we've created. It's an us problem. And that's the only way we're really going to solve it. I love that. And burn it all down. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. I'm just kidding. Steve, I think that's, a, I mean, thank you for saying that because <laughs> in a way, but I don't think it has to be a violent sort of revolution. I think this is right. in some ways that what we're burning down is an idea. We're burning sure. the concept that more consumeristic stuff is going to make us happy. Balancing our creativity and consumption, balancing our outputs and inputs. These are messages that nature teaches us every single day. You know, a tree goes up from its roots, it puts out branches, it takes in sun and light and water, and then it creates. 
you know, flowers and apples and all sorts of lovely things that then self-produce thousands more of those things. Is that wasteful? Is that consumeristic overload? No, that's a natural system as it's meant to run, producing, giving and taking, sharing. And I know it sounds like kind of a hippie woo-woo thing to say, but if we were to listen to our own bodies, they would tell us how much to take in, how much to put out. Right. We've, we really have to burn down the notion that media is going to tell us the right way to do it. <laughs> the answers are truly in us. We just have to learn to listen with more acuity, I think. And Absolutely. there are skills definitely that can be learned that make it easier. And that's why I do what I do. And that's yeah. why you guys do what you do too. I love the tree analogy. I mean, the, nobody had to tell the tree how to do that. The tree doesn't compare itself to the tree in the next orchard or say, I have to have this color t-shirt on to grow stronger or better or whatever else. And it persists. I mean, the tree faces all kinds of challenges and it just continues to learn how to grow and develop and adapt and produce. And that's, it doesn't have to be hard. And back to your original comment earlier about us being nature, everything that you were saying about the people who came before us, you could say about that tree and vice versa. We knew how to do it. We didn't have to look beside us to see if we were doing it the right way or fast enough or good enough or, you know, the, the old saying, keeping up with the Joneses has been around a long time before social media, but now it's keeping up with 10 million Joneses across the world constantly and every type of social media platform every day. While witnessing the horrors of exactly. all over the world. You know, exactly. one thing too, since you brought up the tree thing, I'll just say too, remember too, the trees don't function as individuals. Yeah, Trees exactly. function in relationship with each other and with their landscape. And we now know science recently is just showing fascinating information about how trees share resources through their root networks and others means. And that is how humans really are meant to work too. In societies, when we are living in close community with each other, we sense each other's needs and want to help. I personally feel that my awareness of the world of needs around me is part of what sparks me to do what I do. I have a desire to give my best gifts. I have a desire to create this content. I want to put it out into the world, not just to make a buck, but because like I said, I want to live in a healthier, happier world and I can feel the world around me needing something yeah. from me. And if I just give and give and give and give and I produce and produce and produce and I don't take care of myself, I don't rest and recover and feed myself and get my basic needs met, I won't be able to do that for very long. But we're here, the three of us talking about this today, in part because it does nurture us and it nurtures our communities when we share this information. And when our communities come back and say, oh my God, that made such a difference. Thank you. That helped me see it differently. That feeds us back. You know, this is how real human needs can be met and how real health can be created. It's just nourishing each other with a little bit more skill and a little bit more sensitivity than we've been taught to. I want to give you a standing ovation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> Thank you. How often have we said, you know, we've only made it this far as a species together. And the fact that we think that we're going to go forward alone and be successful is just terrifying. And you know, one of my mentors, Zig Ziglar, was famous for saying, and I've said it before on the show, you can have everything in life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. And I'm a firm believer in that. And I truly believe that that's, again, how we've made it this far. You take care of your neighbor and your neighbor will take care of you. And don't apologize for being hippie and woo-woo because we speak fluent hippie on the show. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and again, you know, Steve is, is really big about talking about labels and how we lead with labels and you know, even with hippie and other terms, I mean, it's just 
human. Yeah. We all have that aspect of our lives where we could be considered hippie or anything else. I mean, there's something that we're passionate about that others, we fear and perceive that others might not agree with us and we get nervous. But again, these are all human issues. The pandemic was a species level event. And, you know, in some ways we handled it okay. In some ways, I'm terrified for the next species level event based on how we handled this one, but we handled it and we learned hopefully, and we'll be better for the next one. But bottom line is there were human level events before that there will be others. And if we're divided, we have to face those as individuals and we're not going to do well. And I think that everything you're saying is just a message that we need to hear right now as a society. And I know we could talk about this for the next six hours. I do want to be very respectful of your time. And I hate this part of the show, but I love it, but I hate it because we have to get away from the message a little bit. But if you're okay with it, I would love to shift to the part of the interview called the fast five. Let's do it. All right. Five quick questions. Answer as quickly as you can. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Number one, where's your favorite place to get outside? Right here at the farm. Why? Well, I live on a really beautiful farm where my family all lives in a little intentional community. And it has a spring and a pond and pastures and meadows and forests and fields. And when I go out and walk, I walk through five or six different ecosystems within the first 15 minutes. And it just absolutely fills me up and fills up my senses in ways that help me return to myself, my authentic self, and remind myself that I belong here. I have a great sense of place in this place. Oh, I love that so much. And honestly, since the first time we met and you told me about that environment, I've, I've wanted to, uh, to get there and see it. So hopefully someday we Come can Come visit whenever you can. I'd love yeah. to. Number two, what is your preferred outdoor activity? Well, I really like walking and sitting. You know, sometimes there's a little board that goes across this little stream, like a bridge. And sometimes I'll just walk down there and sit on the little piece of wood, basically the crossing. It's no wider than, you know, two feet, maybe. I'll just sit there and listen to the water and watch it flow and listen to the birds and the frogs and things. And that that particular location is feels super sacred to me and healing. It always puts my nervous system back to normal. I think Steve and I both have a place like that, multiple places like that, but Steve sends me photos from his once in a while, and I'm very grateful for that. Pilar, what's your favorite food to eat outside? To eat outside? Mm-hmm. Mm, apple right off the tree. Oh. Just picking an apple off the tree and eating it like that. And there's something so satisfying about every part of that process. You reach up and you can typically, you know, within my, I'm five foot six and most of our apple trees, I can at least reach the lower branches. To grab an apple, pull, have the resistance from the branch, and then pink off it comes, and to put that thing directly into your mouth, crunch it, and have that apple juice in your... It's just like so glorious. When you talk about gratitude, I feel like I can't believe I am this lucky. I just get to pick this apple for free off this tree and just eat it. It's the healthiest thing in the world. It's like so full of nutrients. It hasn't had a chance. It's a living food. Any food like that, that I can eat, kale out of the garden, you know, a weed, <laughs> a berry, 
that the if I can eat something directly off what it's just been growing on, I'm the happiest person in the world. Oh, I love that. Steve, I know you love that too. Yeah. I'm hoping Dr. John Bagnulo from episode five of last season is listening right now. I know he would love that. Do you have a favorite animal? Mm, my dog. Free. Yeah, this I have a thing about pit bulls, and I've had three pit bulls, each of whom I've loved individually as much or more than the next one. But my current dog, Sally Sue, is a, le- a little lunatic, and she's a rescue pit bull <laughs> who's just been with me for about six months now. But I feel it just the most profound bond with her, and I really enjoy her company and her spirit. If you could only go to one outdoor spot for the rest of your life, what would it be? Boundary waters, probably. I mean, other than the farm, because this is where I live, you know, but if I was going to go to an outdoor environment and stay there for the rest of my life, I think I would have to learn some mad skills from Steve probably, but (laughs) Um, the boundary waters, actually, when you had asked me to send you a a picture of mine, a favorite picture of me in nature, that's where I immediately, my head went, was we have a cabin up on a lake in Voyager National Park. It's now a national park. You can't build cabins there anymore, but it's right at the edge of the boundary waters between Northern Minnesota and Canada. And it is one of the last really kind of untouched feeling spaces that I I know of. And it's just rocks and water and trees and loons and wolves. And it is just majestic. There's a lot of parts of the boundary waters that are canoe area only. So the boundary waters canoe area, there's no motorboats. So you really have the sense of quietude and peace and a slower pace. I don't go there very often. We go to our cabin in the summertime. Every time I'm up there, I'm like, you know, someday I don't want to come up here and be here more because it's really gloriously beautiful. And I think it's healing again. It's that environment that our body minds understand. Like there's a spatial quality to that environment that I feel like it's in my heredity. It's in my genes to feel good with that level of complexity and simplicity and abundance, you know? There's food that's available, fish and berries and things like that. But I'm pretty attached to the farm too. So it might be a little bit of a toss up. I just added it to my list of places, Boundary Waters. <laughs> Gotta yeah, go. Good fly fishing out there too. Amazing. Yeah. Stop selling it, Steve. I'm, I'm yeah. sold. I'm sold. <laughs> One bonus question for you. Do you have a favorite nature quote, saying, or idiom? Yes. Um, there's a quote by John Muir I love. We actually featured this in the magazine. We had a last page in the magazine where we always had quotes. And this one struck me as so true. He said, when one tugs on anything in nature, one finds it attached to the rest of the world. And love that idea Mm, that, you know, you pull a carrot out of the ground, you find the taproot connected to the earth and the earth has got the worms and the worms are connected to the same thing. You pull an apple off a tree, you know, the tree's connected to the ground. So if we think about that, like when you tug on anything in nature, you're going to find it attached to the rest of the world. It feels to me like that's really true of us too. Like you can't take a human part, an organ or a system and tug on it and not notice it's connected to all the other parts. And you can't tug on one person without finding that person is connected to a whole bunch of other people. That people as a community, the community is connected to a place and the place is connected to nature. Wow. That's fantastic. John Muir, not me. <laughs> yeah. I've said this multiple times. John Muir should be taught in medical schools across the country. If you had one message for the world about nature and how it impacts well-being, what would it be? 
recognize that you are part of nature and that humans grow out of nature. We aren't set up on top of it. Think about the places that you are connected through, you know, your breath, your physical presence, your intake and outputs of nutrients, and just recognize you're an organism that's part of a larger organism. And you have to learn to function with that respect or you'll never be healthy. Oh, I love that. How can people find out more about you and your work? Oh, that's easy. <laughs> well, um, I mean, you can find me on social media and my most of my Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, you know, will link you back to my website, but our websites, I should say, I now have like five of them. I'm really trying to simplify my own digital footprint right now. I'm working with somebody who's good at that because I realized over the course of the last 20 years, I just produced so much content and so many different platforms. But I'm mostly sending people to healthydeviant.com right now. Okay. That's the site where my book is at. And some really fun free resources that I've got there, including a free preview of my book, which you can get a sample of the audiobook or the printed book. You can also take a quiz that I have there called the Are You a Healthy Deviant quiz, free quiz that lets you know where you fall on the healthy deviant spectrum from decidedly non-deviant all the way to hardcore healthy deviant. I have a I won't say the exact term because I know that you've got a very clean rating on your podcast, but I call it a ticked off body syndrome quiz that you can take to find out how upset your body is with you right now. And then links to things like my podcast and more. But I think healthydeviant.com is a really easy place to begin exploring to find out what Healthy Deviance really is. Um, you can connect with a lot of different programs there. I teach digital courses on these topics. I have an ongoing membership program called Healthy Deviant U that has just blown my mind in terms of how transformative it's been for folks and also how supportive that community of people is for each other. It really feels like an experiment. If you get enough people thinking healthy deviant thoughts, they realize they're not deviant. They're actually creating new normal for themselves. And that's really delightful. But I welcome people of all ages, all genders, all types, all stripes. I really think one of the principles of healthy deviance is to make it a party. The manifesto of Healthy Deviance ends with that point. Make it a party. Like we need to create spaces for people to get together and be accepted, whoever they are, however they are, and to have more fun. So healthy isn't synonymous with self-denial or misery or struggle or tightness. It should be a it should be a pretty good time in my view. So please come visit me on my uh, social media channels and at my website and we'll hang out, get to know each I other better. That. All of that'll be in the show notes too. So don't worry about that. People will Wonderful. be able to find you everywhere. Uh, Steve, what do you have for Pilar before we leave? I mean, nothing but gratitude. Sorry, I'm, I'm, yes, so grateful that you're willing to give us this much of your time. You've shared you shared quite a bit with us. We're going over an hour, and so again, I'm so so grateful that you're willing to share and have this discussion with us. You've brought up some amazing points, right? That that are not difficult, right? You've brought up very very attainable actions that we can choose to take in our day to day lives that. We don't necessarily have to highlight anywhere, right? We don't have to get up and share with the world necessarily to be judged, right? Or to invite judgment, right? The, you, you highlight a lot of actions and activities that we can simply begin doing, hopefully without self-judgment, right? And we will see improvement, right? Over time, right? Because our health, right? Our health is an investment. It's a continuous investment, right? And we say, we've, you know, we've talked about our health as wealth, right? And, and, and mental wealth. Something that's a concept that I really, really love and have fun talking about. And we've talked a lot about different aspects, mental wealth. 
So, so thank you for, for highlighting certain things for our audience and, and to try and help you know, both Mark and I too um, find even more ways to, to love one another, right? I think you, you made some suggestions here that just enhance relationships, right? And enhance our ability to connect as people. So thank you for sharing of your time. And I hope to be involved in some sort of fire pit that you were involved in on that last Friday <laughs> or what have you, because it sounds like a lot yeah. of fun. When people are not pulling out their cell phones, I know I'm a more enthusiastic person because I'm realizing, hey, I'm surrounded by those who want to connect right here, right now. Right? And to me, that is something that we are not doing enough of as a society because we're so preoccupied with these tools that were inserted into our you know, common day-to-day living now, which were not a distraction before. They weren't a distraction 25 years ago. They didn't exist. 25 years ago. So I'm very, very enthusiastic for our future and hope to share that fire pit with you sometime soon. I love it. Well, virtual fire pit, I'd love to have you both join. I have a Healthy Deviant Facebook group, but I do do Healthy Deviant Day Camp. We just did our first one this past year. People came and spent the whole day at the farm. So I'll invite you the next time we do it and you can come for Healthy Deviant Day Camp, which ends with a large fire. (laughs) That'd be great. I would love that. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. And thank you. And you know, you're absolutely on my gratitude list now that we're talking Thanksgiving and what we're grateful for and thankful for. And just the work that you're doing, the fact that you're willing to take risks because some of the terms that you've chosen were risks and and I'm so glad they're landing how they should. And, you know, I'm just so happy and thankful that someone's out there doing the work that you're doing, especially the type of person you are. And I really I couldn't be more proud to know you and more excited about what you're doing. And thank you for making the world a little bit better, honestly. Thank you. Thank you very much. And for everyone listening, until next time, please do your health and well-being the best favor you can and just get outside. Thank you for listening to the Nature of Wellness podcast, hosted by Dr. Mark A. Campbell and Steve Otero. Follow us on Instagram at Nature of Wellness, with new content being added frequently. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe wherever you listen. The content of this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing should be taken as legal or medical advice. The information is not intended to replace the guidance of your healthcare providers, but to create an outlet for new discussions with them.